you like our owl? How many questions does it usually take to spot? I don't get it, Tyrell. How many questions? 20, 30, cross-referenced. Fiery the angels fell. Deep thunder rolled around their shores, burning with the fires of a hawk. Welcome to Shoulder of Orion, the Blade Runner podcast. I am your host, Jamie Prater, and I'm joined by my co-host. Patrick, or should I say Patrick, Patrick. Green. Denier. Patrick. Denier. Patrick. Denier. Patrick. <laughs> <laughs> we're joking because we're trying to figure out if we should be, you know, how French, French we should get with our pronunciation on the film company behind tonight's documentary. I think, I think Arte. Arte. Is how we say okay. it. I think Arte. Not Arte. Arte. See, Dan's not here tonight Louis to give Le us pronunciation <laughs> shit. <laughs> Listeners might not realize this, but for about a year and a half, Dan, Daniele Ferlito, who is currently scuba diving or getting ready to go scuba diving in Belize. Next to huge real, eels. Next to giant eels. <laughs> uh, is uh, he, He's very intense about pronunciation, about saying things properly. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, and of course, as, as you know, people who listen from the beginning know, there were early episodes where Denis Villeneuve was pronounced Dennis Villeneuve, <laughs> Dennis Villeneuve, Denny, Denny's Villeneuve. <laughs> so it took us Vinalua. a while. Dan was like, I, was like <laughs> "I will not be on this show if you can't fucking say Villeneuve." So Villeneuve. we were like, "Okay, Villeneuve, Villeneuve," and now here we are tonight, and we are so dedicated to pronouncing things properly that we actually were considering saying Arte France for the production company, but it's not. It's Arte France. Arte France. Francois. Francois, how are you doing, Jamie? I am doing well, and we're talking about Arte France because there's a documentary that was just released. It was, I think, it was released in 2020, but I didn't find out about it until two weeks ago called the Blade Runner Phenomenon and it was produced by Arte France and they interviewed our friend Paul Salmon, friends of the show Joanna Cassidy, Douglas Trumbull, Katie Haber and a bunch of other people who worked on the original Blade Runner and the documentary explores the phenomenon of the film and going into it I actually honestly I was thinking how fresh is this going to be, really? What are they going to talk about that hasn't been discussed? And I, when the film ended, I was really um, happy. And I was like, they really were able to talk about this film in a really great way that felt new, that didn't feel like a retread of anything. Oh, yeah. I think I was I was pleasantly surprised by how, how well made it was. If you want to watch it, uh, I know for a fact it's on YouTube because that's that's the way that we've seen it. It looks like it was just uploaded at the beginning of June, but it is it clearly from 2020 because it's in the title. And also it was filmed prior to that because Sid Mead is in it. 
which is just, I mean, if, if you want to treat, you know, watch Sid Mead talk about futurism in a documentary about Blade Runner. It's like a, an amazing thing to see. So you can watch it on YouTube if you search the Blade Runner phenomenon. And I actually just, as we're sitting here, created a bit.ly link for you if you'd like. And it will be in the show notes as well. But if, you, if you're just sitting there and you want to type it into something, you can type bit.ly slash 3HH capital A X Z capital H. Probably an unnecessary step, but that's another option for you if you want to watch it. Uh, it was really good. I, I I appreciated how it felt very much like it was, uh, it, it felt kind of like it was produced with us, even though we weren't there because so many people we know well were in it. So much of LA in 2019 was, and, and you know, real LA in 2019 was in the film. Um, and it captured for me a lot of things that I felt when I visited and when we did our event in 2019 in Los Angeles, um, which I'm sure we'll touch on tonight. But even other things like, for example, you know, there's a, a lot of material on Metropolis, the great Fritz Long film, which was one of our first ever frame rate episodes. Which that I, was me and Dan. I should have watched and did. Now that I was... <laughs> Jamie uh, was like, I'm not really interested. <laughs> and I saw, I was seeing them talk about it in the documentary. I was like, damn it, I should have watched it and did. But oh well. <laughs> yeah, you would fucking love it, Jamie. You should listen to our frame rate too, is what you should do. Okay. Um, but I, I think it was, I think it was really, really well done. And I also am excited because there's a lot of people in there that we haven't spoken to yet that I think we should reach out to, mm -hmm. like the, you know, the director of that German museum and other things. So yeah, I, I was very uh, pleasantly surprised. Yes, I was as well. Uh, again, talking about some themes that we're going to be discussing next year when we launch our series honoring the 40 year legacy of Blade Runner and how it's influenced many films since its release in 1982. It talks about that a little bit. It covers that a little bit, really, in terms of the phenomenon. But some of the things that I really loved about the documentary was that it interviewed people on the streets of L.A., asking them if they had heard of Blade Runner, looking at the dystopia that that is appearing in our lives now. And I'm not talking about COVID so much, just the the dystopia between the rich and the poor, how that gap is growing larger and larger. And where are they living? Where are they going? To the streets. And if you watch the original Blade Runner film, where are all these people? A lot of them on the streets. And you see them everywhere. They're on cars. They're riding their bikes. They don't really have anywhere to live. So the city is their home. And uh, you feel a lot of that in this documentary. And it was sobering. And it was a little troubling. And it was a little disturbing. But very insightful, and I felt like something we needed to see. So that that's actually part of what I was alluding to about the first time I stepped foot in Los Angeles, which was twice in 2019. Um, uh, I was shocked at the visibility of the homeless populations there and at the tent cities and how out in the street so many people were because on the East Coast, you know, most of our cities have pretty extensive shelter systems. You do see, you know, people who are displaced or don't have anywhere to go of course like you would in any metropolitan area but um but by and large they're kind of in the margins a little bit visually and in los angeles uh, you know i mean we walked all over the place you know going out to restaurants and things and we were walking you know literally around and between you know people's homes out there in the street and in, in, in tents and things and i was really struck by that at the visibility of people who don't have anywhere to go um, and I was also struck by how hot it was. That was something else that, of course, and I'm saying that, you know, it's, it's hot in the East Coast right now, too. But this was, you know, L.A. in February, for example. 
and it was extremely hot. And I was just thinking about all of these people who are just sitting out there in the open, you know, not only uh, without like a, a home to call their own, but also, uh, you know, with a uh, just this incredibly hot temperature, which reminds me of like the Hades landscape that they talk about pretty extensively in the film too. Um, but that that's something that is is L.A. to me, you know. It's funny, when I first visited, I had this semi-romanticized notion of what Los Angeles was because, you know, I, I really, I've, I've, I've never been to California before that. Um, I had never been to the West Coast before that of the United States. And so you flown LA to San to Francisco was, once? I, I've, I've flown into places, but I, oh, I, I okay. never, I've never gotten out and done anything. Got it. Um, regrettably, you know, I've always wanted to, I've always had friends out there, but you know, they've always been visiting me over here. Um, and, and it just never had worked out before. So, so, so I, I, I've always looked forward to it, you know, and I had never done it before. Um, and to me, Los Angeles is the movies, right? It's synonymous of course with film because that's what its major export is. And in the movies, it's typically portrayed with this kind of idealized, you know, Malibu palm tree facade, right? You think of the Hollywood Hills and you think of, uh, you think of Rodeo Drive and you think of Beverly Hills and things like that. Um, but Blade Runner captures what Los Angeles actually felt like once I got there, which was not the safest place in the world, but also not the happiest place in the, in the world, to say it, to put it mildly. Um, it's a beautiful place. And the, the people are, are wonderful and, and just the amount of culture and the amount of history on the street corners and the the amount of just, just cinematic history that you're just surrounded by and shooting locations you recognize. It, it is astounding to be there for the first time, but it's not like a happy feeling. It's not a feeling of, oh, I could live here forever. I could just, you know, I could lay down and find a place to, to, to settle down with my family, um, at least to me. For many people, it's, it's not that way. And I'm, I'm glad they touched on that in the documentary, but I'm also glad that Blade Runner gave a voice to that side of Los Angeles that I think is a lot more real than this idealized, you know, world that we get too far too often. I've been to downtown LA several times, um, whether it's to Clifton's, which is an old speakeasy that reopened um, and was restored to what it originally looked like in the 20s and other places. I've been to downtown quite a bit. I'd never spent the kind of time in downtown like we did for our event. We stayed in an Airbnb in this building devoted to Airbnbs. And it was sort of on this corner of an alleyway, but a street, and it didn't feel necessarily safe. And even the atmosphere of being downtown for our event, like when we were in our event space, it was great. When we weren't, I mean, I guess when we were in, when we were in our Airbnb, it was fine too, because it was all of us together hanging out. But walking the streets of the city, it felt cold and dangerous and dystopian and like we were at the end of the world and empty um, which is which was yes not what i was expecting at all yes you know and over here in new york and boston and cities like that like this the city's just always going like everybody's out doing stuff you know all the time in los angeles at night uh, i got a real sense that like things just at a certain point in the evening really emptied out Mm-hmm. And there was this totally different spirit that took over. And, yes. and for me, that was really apparent when Micah came, because she flew in a couple of days after I did. 
and uh, and I had to go, you know, get her outside her taxi, you know, dropped her off at like one in the morning. And I was I was genuinely like afraid for her safety coming into the building because there were there were so many screams outside and just like things crashing and like, you know, bottles breaking and things. And so I remember waiting for her taxi to get there outside and hearing people actually howling, which, of course, was very much a, a Rucker Howard moment. Right. But people actually howling like wolves, like a circle of people in a field, this like empty field near our Airbnb howling at the moon. And thinking like, man, what the fuck have I gotten myself into? The city is not what I expected. Yeah. But it's intoxicating though too. It, it's it's an it intriguing is. place. And also, like, I I want to be clear that we are not demeaning people who don't have a house. Like, we're not. It's not. It's not their fault, right? It's it's just that it's it's just uh it's shocking because you don't always see poverty that visible. And um and to see it, it's not just the the poverty. It's the level of there's an entire micro society of homeless people in Los Angeles who are just out all night long lining these streets and it's just it's it's maybe not unique to LA but it, it's unique in my experience to get back to the documentary what they're talking about in the documentary in the world that Ridley Scott established in Blade Runner it was essentially him calling the future and he did the big exception is do we have flying cars no but we're not far from that. And they talk about that briefly in the film, but they talk about technology t taking over and the disparity between the rich and the poor and what LA specifically looks like in 2019. And it's really that in many ways. It's certainly if you go down to across the street from the Bradbury, there's the central market where you can, where we went and ate a few times. Uh, I think we ate there in February. And then we ate there like two or three times again for, well, it's pretty freaking good. Let's be it's clear. There's a, it's a, there's really a great. good food food booths at that place. And it is, it is quintessentially Blade Runner. I mean, it is the Blade Runner aesthetic. You yeah. can't, I mean, neon signs in there, all these different food areas, a noodle bar, everything in Central Market. So Ridley Scott, again, called it in terms of what the future would look like. And so this documentary examines that a little bit. And it's a wake-up call, but it's also a wake-up call that's late. It's it's too late. It is. It's too late. We've become, in some regard, the future we were most dreading. And we needed to examine that. And the documentary examines that a little bit. The documentary then backs up and goes further into why Blade Runner is so influential. Asking those questions, they talk to a lot of people who helped make the film. Whether it's Douglas Trumbull... Um, who did a lot of the effects, Joanna Cassidy, who played Zora, Edward James Almost, who played Gaff. There are some interviews with Ridley Scott, but they were not done for the film. They were done, I think they were recorded for other projects. I think that even our friend Charles de la Zurica recorded, and they just used them. Uh, there are snippets of interviews with Harrison Ford that were clearly used, done for other things, but they <laughs> yeah. used them for for the because Harrison Ford's not like a big he doesn't give a guy. shit about publicity yeah, yeah. he doesn't um, but I, they, they were informative because oftentimes in documentaries like that when they don't have the big talent like that one documentary that we reviewed uh, what Memory was it for the, Memory yeah where there was, there was just glaring like Sigourney Weaver wasn't interviewed Ridley Scott wasn't interviewed um, and something felt missing there was a lot of things missing but th for this film the, the Blade Runner phenomenon because they included other interviews that existed with Ridley Scott and with Harrison Ford, when it was over, I didn't feel like oh, we're missing their voices. It felt complete. 
Totally. Yeah. And again, I, I want to call out Sid Mead in particular on this because like, I haven't personally seen a ton of interviews with him in the past. And of course he passed away right before 2020 started um, after uh, an extended battle with lymphoma. And, and you can see in the documentary, he's quite thin and it was probably pretty close to the end of his life, mm-hmm. but he's so with it and like vivacious and he's yes. just, you know, people always talk about, and they talk about in the documentary, how you could sit down and, you know, he could just extrapolate for three hours about, you know, sociopolitical upheavals and about the way that urban centers decay over time. And you get, you see that in this movie, you know, you see, you see him, uh, like waxing poetic about, you know, urban decrepitude and the ways that wires layer on top of each other to provide ducting for buildings and higher levels and things. And uh, so, so it, it as a as a historical document, it's important because there's a, a lot of Sid Mead stuff in it. But it's also important, I think, because it's Sid Mead looking at this film now. You know, at the end of his life, as a guy who lived to be, you know, into his mid eighties, um, having seen a lot of change in his lifetime, examining what was what was on and what wasn't on about some of the predictive things that they were doing mm-hmm. and um and as you mentioned that, that that's definitely a common theme throughout is like how right did we get it you know like like what what did, what did we see coming and sid Mead, you know r- like really accurately predicted just a huge amount of things and it's funny to hear him talk about it because you you know you know he talked to ridley ridley did some ridley grams showed him some of his ideas and then you know sid Mead went off and as he said he designed the cars first because they took the longest to create right and he did that probably in over a couple of weeks or something just doing some sketches you know but in that couple of weeks, he managed to predict huge social change that was happening, right? Mm-hmm. Like he managed to predict this, this, these ideas of architecture that like have been so influential for generations of people. Uh, one of which is this idea that the lower stratum of a building is the old building, right? Is, is, is sort of the, the, the husk of the former architecture. And then the towers kind of rise out of that, like uh, some sort of an eruptive thing. And that the lower husk buildings become basically housing for, you know, HVAC elements and for, you know, engineering stuff that would feed the upper building. And that's something that you see all the time in major cities on the East Coast, too. You know, you see mm-hmm. all of these, these you know, renovation projects, quote unquote, that are really just, you know, getting away with just destroying the foundational building that was there to begin with. And it's just using that foundational building as an excuse to build a skyscraper on top of Yeah, they of hollow it, it out. Yeah, yeah. They hollow it out, right? And they put a glass, you know, a curtain wall through the middle of it that goes up for 500 or 600 feet. So I thought that was really interesting too. And Sid Mead talks also about how, you know, he uh, was in some ways looking at trends in architecture in the early 80s or the late 70s, which were all vertically oriented as they are now. And just building it out from there and thinking, well, things will be going up if they aren't going anywhere. And I have to say, as somebody who goes into New York City quite a bit, you know, uh, but hadn't been there because of COVID for a while, uh, that that trend is like more you know, on point than I had even imagined because you have all of these like incredibly tall, incredibly narrow skyscrapers that are just shooting up that are only for billionaires, right? You have these places lining Central Park West and and, and Fifth Avenue that are just these enormous skyscrapers where the rent or the, you know, the price of the condominium is like unimaginably expensive. And it's designed to be, it's designed to be only for billionaires. They call it billionaires row. Um, And that is a trend that Blade Runner, of course, uses, you know, hugely with Tyrell and others. And uh, and it feels like more on point than ever, even maybe then Sid Mead realized, you know, at the time of his death, he, he really was was dead on about that, about vertical architecture as a way to express wealth and um, quote unquote superiority. Another large theme is 
They don't they don't really talk about specific characters to your point, but what they do talk about are the replicants and these people running for their lives. And I couldn't help but compare the replicants to the homeless, the way we view people, the way we view people as less than us or as less not worth as much or whether it's immigrants or conversations that we've had before. But those conversations are really prescient right now. They're really relevant to the conversations that we're having today, whether it's trans rights or LGBT rights, looking at people who are human and seeing their humanity and not seeing, oh, you're different from us. In Blade Runner, you know, one of the whole things is, you know, you have these replicants that look like us, that talk like us, and they're built differently or assembled or whatever. But, and maybe there's some things to be cautious on over, but they're not even viewed as human. They're just viewed as toasters or machines or, you know, even Deckard really doesn't really view replicants as anything more. He's like, what does he say? What's his famous line? Replicants are like any other machine. They're either a benefit or a hazard. They're a benefit. It's not my problem. And that's how they talk about these organic creatures, people, whatever, as machines, as if they're doing okay, then we're, we don't have an issue. We are using similar language today with certain subsets or groups or immigrants or whatever. And I don't want to get too far into that, but I wanted to bring it up because this is one of the themes that they explore, how we're treating, how we're treating each other. How do we see the homeless? What is their value? How do we value? What does, what is industry valuing? Is it valuing people or is it valuing the, the mighty dollar? I mean, we know the answer to that question. But again, this really made this documentary worth it to me, that they were really examining some hard questions. Like, who are we? And that's what Blade Runner does, right? It asks us, who are we? Not just who are we as people, as physiological beings, but who are we as spiritual beings? How do we treat other people that are different from us? And uh, it's a litmus test for how we treat other people. So by the end of the original film, and certainly 2049, we have questions posed. How do we treat each other? How do we see each other's humanity? That's a struggle for all of us as people, to see each other's humanity and not be bogged down by our own opinion or our own experience or our own way of doing things and say, you know what, there's other people on this road with me. Blade Runner is an examination of that in some ways. And so is this film. So it's 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 totally worthy. Yeah, totally. There, uh, to, to a couple of points in there. Um, first, I feel like the uh, there was a, a scene early on. You talk about like visibility of how we see each other and people. There's a scene early on where the filmmakers are talking to members of the homeless population in Los mm-hmm. Angeles about whether they've seen Blade Runner or not. Which is which strikes me like in in some way. I, I mean, I I don't I don't know. It it, it feels a little strange to me to be. To be doing that, like it feels almost like they're not tokenizing these people's existence, but that they're like, like let's go like talk to the homeless people and see what they think of this movie. You know, there's something a little, a little kind of socially strange about that. But whatever, their intentions were good, I'm sure. But the homeless people, by and large, were like, I don't give a fuck about this movie. Like, what, why, why are you, you know, asking me about this? I have, I have better things to do. One of them, um, though, you know, had seen it in the '80s, and uh, and he said that he wanted to see 2049. But it came down to going to see a movie or buying food. And he said, it, you know, he had to choose food, which, of course, is like a really, you know, that it's it's important to remember that sometimes the, the, the sorts of things that we take for granted with our very sheltered existence, you know, mm-hmm. um, and, and the luxury we have to be able to sit here in our comfortable living spaces talking about a movie 
um, about a movie, right? <laughs> like there's, there's something to, to be said for that. And for remembering that there are people who don't have that, that there are people who for whatever variety of reasons are in a place in their lives where they're out on that hot pavement tonight in Los Angeles, um, you know, hoping that their shit doesn't get ransacked and hoping that, you know, they don't get kicked out by the cops or redistricted or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a good, it's a good reminder of that. But also to another point you were making about replicants and, and how I, I agree. I think, although, as we were saying before we were recording, this documentary doesn't focus a lot on, on any characters, which is shocking. I mean, it's shocking to me that a documentary about Blade Runner says essentially nothing about Roy Batty, says essentially nothing True. about Rachel. Like Rachel is brought up only as like the sort of, you know, antithesis to Pris. Like I'm like, And they what? didn't even interview, what's shocking to me, and I was shocked that they didn't interview Sean Young, but at the same time, I'm like, well, Sean Young certainly recently is not, maybe they just want to completely stay away from that. She probably would have asked for money or whatever, or I don't know how some documentaries pay for their their interviews, but maybe it was just, it was a train wreck they wanted to stay away from. But I did feel like who she was is integral into the movie, who Deckard was, plays into all of those themes. Talk about them, but they didn't. Yeah, but that wasn't really the the focus of the movie. But 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 going back to what you're saying, though, I, I do think that I'm glad they talked about replicants quite a bit uh, and about what they represent and getting to hear Ridley Scott's early opinions on it when he was talking through the process of how they arrived at the word replicant instead of android. You know, hearing Sid Mead talk about that, I thought was really interesting. But also Joanna Cassidy, who, as we know well, and our listeners will know well, is just incredibly eloquent on all things Blade Runner and provided what to this day I think is the best interview I've ever been a part of, which is the one that we conducted in her house where she talked mm-hmm. about her dreams of flying as Zora. Mm-hmm. Just an, an, an amazing interview. Similarly, makes a lot of really great points in this documentary. And one of them is what a sad existence Deckard must have as somebody who exists only to shoot replicants. Like his entire life revolves around just shooting one subclass or genre of humanoid because they're not where they're supposed to be, right? Uh, and I, I, I hadn't really thought at length about that. You know, we we did a Deckard episode a long time ago, um, but Deckard is not a character that has ever really resonated with me in any in any really meaningful way. Um, but that 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 hit me a little bit tonight about how sad that would be for your job to be basically just shooting people. Um, that would that would really get to me, and I'm I'm glad that she touched on that. I am as well. It makes me think of Kay, where his job was essentially the same thing. Yeah. Um, and it kind of made sense that he was programmed to essentially be hollow. He was sort of a, a this entity that took in everything, but he didn't really emote. And you need someone like that to kill these things. Right. Because um, look what happens if you don't. You end up with an alcoholic depressive, yeah. right? You end up with a Deckard. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I think that there are elements of Deckard that I do identify with or I have in my life in terms of being asleep at the wheel, not really driving your life, just going about your day, not really appreciating the life that you're living. Um, but uh, yeah, to your point, yeah, it was he was set up to fail, essentially. And and uh, he chose a different path, as did Kay. Uh, but yeah, that's it is that's a sobering thought. Yeah, um, that he, that's, that's he's a, a, tough, hired, a tough life. He's a killer. He's a killer. Yeah. That's what he is. And a killer of, of people, I'm, I'm just going to say people, because whatever, they're indistinguishable, essentially, of of people who just aren't in the place that they were supposed to be, right? Like, if, if you're not in the right side of the hallway, you know, you get shot, essentially, um, which really sucks. But one other thing Joanna Cassidy said that I want to um, call attention to that I, th- I thought was powerful was how much her death scene, Azora, continues to affect her. Mm-hmm. Um 
And, you know, you know, she says she's seen the movie 30 times at least, and she cries every time she, you know, runs through the glass. Something that, you know, uh, the listeners of the show will, will remember from our conversation with her is how passionate she was about reshooting some of those final sequences so that her face looked right and her hair looked right, and she wasn't the stunt double. Um, and I, I don't think I totally got why that was such a bugaboo for her until this particular interview because of the fact that that death sequence is very emotionally fraught for her. Like it's something that she put a lot of herself and her fears and her, you know, wishes into. And it's like the ultimate emotional moment for that character. And it was, it was robbed from her from a movie that, you know, everybody making it assumed would be, you know, kind of a mid-level, you know, kind of a mid-range sci-fi sleeper hit, but nobody making it was like, oh, this will be like the classic science fiction film of the late 20th century. Right. Mm -hmm. And then it became that. And she was like, no, I, I need to, I need to get this right. This scene is too important to me. So it wasn't like a vanity. And it's not like I ever thought it was a vanity thing. And it's not like I ever thought it was something that was about her, but I never quite got why she was so she cared so much about it. But it, in this documentary, I think she gets into why, and I think it's very powerful to hear her talk about that. Yeah, it was for me as well, very powerful, especially the end where I think her last words are, "This movie will never be forgotten ever." Yeah, and it was just like it was almost like the boom at the beginning of the films. That's what those words were. They just it's like a wave over me. I it made me want to watch the film again with new eyes i mean maybe i'll even watch it tonight but her her inclusion was really really necessary and profound and um again we've heard her talk so much about it i was interested to see what else can she say about this that hasn't been said um but she, there's a lot apparently that she can say about it um i mean and i suppose we should maybe move into some things the film didn't cover um, and dissed a little bit. I wouldn't say the film dissed them. Some of their subjects in the film dissed them. Um, and to me, if you're going to uh, make a documentary about Blade Runner, I think you should ex cover both films. I don't know. Maybe. I mean, the first film is so important. But we're in a time now where the second film is is rising to that stature. You know, it's it's at the it's moving to this place, especially with pandemic and fires and the world changing and the heat and the way the world looked for a few months last year during the fires and that, that orange glow in Sydney and San Francisco and other places, it, everyone was talking about Blade Runner 2049 and they didn't really cover it. They asked some questions here and there. They showed some clips here and there, but they didn't really talk about the world that Blade Runner 2049 presented. And I felt like, oh, that was a little bit, of a missed opportunity. Yeah. But I, I also think it was the personnel that they had, right? Because it was all people who were involved in the first one. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that that, that they were really clearly aiming this, I think at the first, yeah. at the first film, but it did feel like an afterthought to me because 2049, as you mentioned, came up in kind of fleeting glimpses and mostly just at the very end and mostly just to like dump shit on it. Like it was a movie that, you know, on the show, we frequently call it a masterpiece. It's, it's a film that there have been times in the last three years where I've liked it more than the first movie where it's spoken to me more. Um, I think it's gone back to the, you know, Blade Runner 82 being my number one and of the two, but you know, but it's it, the point being that they're both such powerful documents that speak to us that, you know, to have it taught like Doug Trumbull, who, you know, 
don't let me, you know, don't get me wrong, is like one of the great filmmaking pioneers of, of his entire era and, and is responsible for some of the great sequences in all of film and is a genius and is somebody who I think is absolutely incredible. But like he basically all he has to say about 2049 is that like the CG didn't look good to him um, and that there was too much smog in it so you couldn't see the city at all. And it's just, it's, you know, for such a deep thinker to only have that, to only have that to say about it, I was a little bit shocked by it. Somebody like Katie Haber, like she said, or Haber, she's somebody who I think um, I can more understand having that polarized of an opinion because she's so closely tied to the original movie. And that's something that was, you know, very much a, a, a baby of hers. Um, but I'm still just surprised that, I mean, she really, she was like, you know, very insistent that it wasn't as good of a film but other people too you know unnamed people that we know who were associated with the the original film um have said things to us along the lines of you know we don't want to discuss 2049 publicly you know we uh you know my feelings are a little too complicated to get into um it's a movie that i think for the people who were involved in 1982 i think for them it was uh in, in Blade Runner 2019, I think for them, it, it, there's something almost too personal and too sacrosanct about that movie that makes it harder for them to see the new film with fresh eyes. But maybe I'm, I'm reading too much into it. Yeah, I don't. I, here's what I see when I was watching those scenes or in, in the moments where they were discussing it, flippantly discussing it. And, I, and I've heard, uh, to your point, I've heard some of our friends and other people say their thing about 2049. And I always stop to think, like, for instance, Douglas Trumbull talking about this kind of grayish, this gray tint. And yeah, maybe there are some scenes, but like, dude, did you watch the movie? Did you see the, the scenes in Vegas where it's orange? Did you see the scenes in the in the bar? Did you see the scenes on the street that were like, did you see all, don't you see all the color in that movie? Like, come on. But to pull back from that, because I don't want to get micro. My thing is I feel like what they're not seeing, they're just not seeing the film that they worked on. They're seeing a different film and they can't rec- they can't reconcile that. Like, well, this isn't our film. This isn't like, no, it isn't your film. It's very different. It's a very different world. But and could you they- imagine though for 35 years, you know, you only had your film. Like that was yeah. something, it had the same name. It was something that you tied your legacy to. And then something very different comes along. I, I can I can get it. Yeah, I can, I can buy it. I, I can get it. But at the same time, I also feel like, and this is something you and I discuss as fans, as friends, being able to make space for something else, even if you don't like it or being able to, for me, it's a little bit like, you have to be able to be objective and say, you know what? I love the film that I did. I don't quite understand everything that they were doing. What people tend to do is they tend to cast aspersions on things they don't like. And they do so so to make sure that everyone knows that they don't like it and to maybe influence other people so that they don't like it too. How do I know this? Because I've been guilty of that myself. <laughs> I was going to say, you know what that's like, Jamie. Well, but, but I think so we, do I. We, so I do say, I. We all, very we, many we all are guilty of that. But oh, I think yeah. we are we can get to a point where I feel like you and I are moving past some of that. I mean, we'll, we'll still dig each other on like Covenant Sucks. 
even though I don't think so. I don't think the movie sucks. And we've had complicated, nuanced discussions about that movie. And right. we're going to have a series about it, which is going to be exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, but not well, a shoulder of Orion. That will be not from Perfect Order. Yeah. <laughs> rest assured. No, for, for the show. Shoulder of Orion is not going Two to concurrent be an series. Covenant series. Yeah. Shoulder of, of Covenant. Um, but <laughs> what, again, I felt like they weren't able to get past their own experience. And you have to be able to get past your own experience. If that's part of what empathy is. And I'm not saying that they should love 2049 as much as we do or see it as a masterpiece like most people do. But it was just kind of, it felt unprofessional. It felt sort of low class to me that they just dismissed it. And it was sort of a last, a parting. I didn't, I don't think there's a comparison. Do, do you? That's what Miss yeah, Haber like said. Haber. I mean, they obviously just she's. cut that, I think. Yeah. She's, of course, entirely. Her opinion is her own, and that's great, and I respect her, and maybe she'll be on our show one day. But I just felt like the the documentarians didn't give 20 – if they're going to step into discussing 2049 a little bit, which they did, they needed to do so in a little bit more fair way, like, and they didn't. And that left a bit of a sour taste in my mouth, but that's okay. Yeah, no, I, I totally I – was, I was kind of put off by that. I was even put off a little bit by Douglas Trumbull – uh, like having issues with Denny's name, which of course, like who am I yeah. to cast the stone when we, I just joked that we had a hard time with it at the beginning of the show. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, like, you know, I feel like the filmmaker shouldn't keep that in there. Like, like they shouldn't have one of the great legends in cinema tripping over, you know, this, this new director's name, because he, of course he should know how to say his name. He, I mean, this is the guy who picked up the mantle from this film that, that, that Doug Trumbull worked on at least half of right before the effects were taken over by somebody else. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and yet he goes like, you know, they kept him saying like, and I don't really know how to say his name. I think it's Denny villain, Villeneuve. I hope I'm saying it correctly. Right. And I, f- I feel like you don't need to, to do it. It just, it comes, it makes it feel flippant. It makes it feel yeah. like he's kind of like, even though he's not, and I think Doug Trumbull is probably a really nice person. It makes it sound like he's punching down a little bit. Like, Oh, yes. I don't even really know how to say this guy's name. Right. He's a brilliant filmmaker, but I don't, I don't know. There was just, it was, it was a little bit of a weird inclusion, especially because 2049 is actually such a philosophically weighty and important movie to break it down to just its aesthetic similarities like they did in this, in this documentary yes, bothered yeah. me a lot. And the same way that some of the, the sort of angry mail that we received after 2049 came out bothered me too, right? We got a few messages from listeners who were incensed that the film looked different. They were like, this doesn't look like the LA of 2019. You know, it doesn't have the right lighting. It doesn't have the right contrast. It's not dark. The shadows aren't intense enough. Um, to that, for one thing, I would say, I, I mean, I have about nine retorts for that. One of them being that that 2049 is not a film noir. Tw- you know, 2019 is. Uh, another one is that Roger Deakins and Denny Villeneuve from the very beginning were putting together a distinct visual style that mirrored this, you know, climactically collapsed environment in which they were operating. There's a lot of very deep thinking that goes into the fact that it looks different, right? But a lot of people who were so closely holding on to the original movie, which again should be us because that was our one of our one of our favorite movies for, you know, most of our lives up to this point. So like, you know, I'm grateful that neither of us are in this boat, but a lot of people who really kind of, you know, tied their horse to the original film felt like, oh, this isn't the same thing. I'm I'm fucking out of here, right? And uh, it was a little bit weird hearing these like, you know, kind of legendary figures in cinema talking like that, but whatever. I also have to say, uh, in the beginning of the movie, there was some stuff that, 
it it probably just pissed me off because I like am not a big social media fan in general anymore or something. And because maybe it's because I'm getting older and I'm getting cranky about, you know, those those damn kids late or 30s. something. Late yeah, I'm never fucking late thirties, Jamie. <laughs> um but the people who, you know, in the beginning when they're at the Bradbury building, there's like all of these like, you know, teenagers and twenty somethings there who were like, wait, this is a movie was filmed here? Blade Runner? What the hell's that about? You know, mm-hmm. and then and then, you know, there's people who are like, they're like, you know, nobody actually knows what Blade Runner's about, but it's great for Instagram. <laughs> there's like this kid who says that. And I want yeah, to just like, that was weird. It's just like off-putting, right? Uh, and I get what they're trying to go. Uh, actually, you know what? I don't because I think they're kind of shooting themselves in the foot with their with their thesis of this movie, which is that this influence is so it's everywhere, right? Like, if you're going to talk about a movie being influential, maybe don't start it with people from the youngest generation not knowing what the movie's about, you know? Yeah. Right. Um, that being said, uh, they go past that quickly, and seeing those scenes in the Bradbury Building brought me back so hard to those visits mm-hmm. that we took mm-hmm. to it. I mean, again, people who have not made that pilgrimage yet, it is it is really like an astonishingly powerful space yep. to be in. Yeah, um, and I really, really recommend it. And I hope a lot of you who came to the event were able to also stop by the Bradbury Building because it was just incredible. I remember. I, I think I went there with you and Mike as well, but yeah. certainly I, I remember walking in there with you in twenty in February, and you were like, "Well, you." It was it. There was a hush in the in the inside, and you just you couldn't believe you were there. You yeah. know, uh, it is. It is a sacred space. It is a. I mean, I know other movies were filmed there, but essentially they weren't. That is Blade Runner space, um, and it's. It is not to be missed. A trip to downtown LA is worth it just to go. I don't almost want to go back again unless I'm with one of you guys. Like those, I haven't been back since we were all there, and I wouldn't. I don't think I want to go back until we're all there. But yeah, I, I, I don't mean, want to see the people who are there just for Instagram. You know, like yeah, I, I want to yeah. be there with with the like. There was something so special about our event in that it was a moment where people. I mean, people came from Australia for that. People came from everywhere and they converged in this one little strip of downtown los angeles and on their own time and in their own little subgroups walked over to the bradbury building walked over to central market did these little stops that that, you know we had it's not like it was our idea but that you know we we directed people to when they came um and they got that experience that you're talking about which is seeing these places in the in the company of somebody who gets it the way that you get it who understands that you're walking into church as a child you know mm-hmm. that feeling the first time you, you walk into a huge gothic cathedral and you look up and you can't see the ceiling anymore it's that same feeling when you walk into the bradbury building it's a sense of actual awe uh and yeah so i i totally understand what you're saying but, but we'll go next time i visit oh yeah for sure uh but i i i think Maybe a little bit what we're seeing that seems a little off is that the f- documentary is not being created by native English speakers. And so I'm wondering if the translation in French, we would understand the context or it wouldn't feel a little bit disjointed because we're seeing the English version. But then there are in- interviews with that German, was she an architecture student or an architecture professor? I, I think she was a museum curator. Oh, okay. Um, it's hard to tell because the, the, the intertitles are in German. For this, so I wasn't entirely sure what some people did. But yeah. I think she was a museum curator. Yeah, there were moments where you're like, "Oh, okay, why are they talking to her?" And she's talking about the importance of architecture and what we're seeing and that kind of a thing. Um, but I think some of the little bit of the disjointedness quality to the film come from non-native English speakers 
making this film, so it might play differently for them than it does Maybe. for us. And it's a different crowd of people, and they they experience. They're looking at certainly a, uh, a piece of science fiction, but it's also an American piece of science fiction, even though Ridley Scott's a director. It's an American film. It's an, an American aesthetic, and it's being made for a, essentially a French-slash-European audience. So it might play differently. It plays like tour. I, I want to use the term tourist, but the documentary is almost a little bit like tourists looking at this movie in a way that fans don't look at this movie. But because they were, to some degree, it felt fresh because they're seeing it in a way that we didn't. Um, and they're trying to understand what is it about this movie? Why is this movie so important? And then, you know, the dominoes start falling and we start seeing everything. And then we see Joanna Cassidy. And so it, it makes sense. But it's more exploratory for them than it would be for us, I'd say. Yeah, I think that's that's a good way to put it. It it seems like some, you know, really astute film buffs making a documentary about a movie that they don't talk about on a podcast every other week for years, mm -hmm. right? Like mm -hmm. there, there's there's a little bit of a sense of like, oh, what is really going on with this? Which is why Decorep is a is a big, you know, uh conversation in there. Um Edward James almost, of course, is in it, and he's just such a treat. I, I would love to get him on Shoulder of Orion. I, I, I kind of feel like he would do it. I, I would love to. I mean, I've been trying, man. He won't read his his DMs on Twitter. He tweets all the time. <laughs> yeah, but, but he doesn't read the DMs. Nope. We're gonna get you, Edward James. Almost. We're gonna yes, find we out are. how to get you on Shoulder of Orion because his his anecdotes were so great and his little stories about things were so were so fascinating. And uh, and hearing him talk about the formation of City Speak and you know all all these things, of course, that we all know about because we've read Future Noir, which again Paul Salmon is on this, and as always, is a freaking delight to hear mm -hmm. talk about it. But you know, we've all read the book, we've all seen all the DVD commentaries and special features. You know, we we know a lot of this stuff already, but hearing the actual original sources talk about it is is really really cool. And hearing Edward James almost, you know, talk about how in Hungary, you know, people heard. Uh, like, hey, big horse dick, <laughs> you're a Blade Runner, right? Like, and people laughing about it because they spoke Hungarian. Like, moments like that, hearing it from the horse's mouth, as it were, uh, are, are really great. And again, part of why, you know, I wish we could do more documentary content. I mean, you're a documentarian yourself. I'm, uh, I watch too many documentaries, but I've never made one before. It'd be great to do a, a piece like this, you know, for Blade Runner fandom as well, from an inside fandom perspective. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, this documentary, I think, left some things on the table. I would not give it a perfect score by any no, means. not at all. But it is 100% worth it. It's 52 minutes long. It's, you know, available for free on YouTube. And, uh, and anybody who cares about Blade Runner should watch it and see for yourselves what you think. Absolutely. It's a little bit of a shorter episode this time. Thank you guys for watching. Again, this uh, we're on a different release schedule. We're releasing once a month. It'll be around the 13th through the 15th, essentially, every month. We'll change that up eventually when things are released, like Black Lotus and other announcements are made that will prompt us to start creating more content. But for now, we're on this release schedule. Thank you guys so much for uh, listening. Um, we have this program called Patreon. If you want to support us once a month, it, it starts at $4 a month. All of the money that you donate to us goes back into our show, live events, hosting fees, equipment, audio dramas, all sorts of things. If you're interested, it starts at $4 a month. You go to bladerunnerpodcast.com 
forward slash support. Once you do sign up, you can get access to our show frame rate. And that show is a film review discussion show. And we have like over 50 episodes waiting for you to listen to where we talk about everything. We have another sort of side show called shit show. And we do a couple of episodes of those a year. So you're welcome to listen to that as well. Uh, in the future, there might be more benefits. So if you'd love to support the show, please sign up. Lastly, please give us a review and a rating on your favorite podcast platform of choice, especially Apple podcasts, because the algorithms will really help us become more visible. Our listenership is strong and it is vivacious and it is awesome. But, we could definitely use more listeners to be able to get, you know, the Blade Runner message out there more than ever and to keep the flame alive. Because as as we know well from people who worked in the original movie and are friends of ours now, we are right there as, you know, torchbearers along with other people like, you know, uh, Paul Salmon obviously is a great example of one. But there are people all throughout fandom that do this. But the Blade Runner podcast, Stroll of Orion, has become a sort of a virtual historical record keeping place for Blade Runner. And if you want to support that, uh, a great way to do it if you don't want to do Patreon, or if you also want to do Patreon, is to just give us a quick rating and a review. Uh, we will you know, read it and, and, and take feedback from it, but also it will really help us be more visible. And that'd be a great thing. Absolutely. And to continue this discussion, please go to Fields of Calantha, our Facebook discussion group. There we will, we can talk about this documentary more. You can tell us what you think and we'll maybe talk about what you guys think or thought in our next episode just a little bit so thanks everyone for listening thanks everybody there are very few films that come together like this one it just wasn't seen initially and now there will be waves of it but it will never die this film will never die ever ever